to a special holiday episode of Shit Platypus Says, the commentary on the commentary on the left. My name is Pam Nogales, and I am one of your hosts. Soon joining me will be Lori Rojas and Audrey Crescenti, and also with them will be Reed Cotless, who is a Platypus member in Vermont, and who is also a member of the National Committee of the Socialist Party USA, as well as Ephraim Karlbach, joining us from London, one of our members who is on our organizational committee. We'll be discussing his interview in the Platypus Review 102, our December-January issue. His interview with Ian Birchall, who was a member of the Socialist Workers' Party. And because it's a special edition, we'll be featuring some clips, including an interview with Tony Cliff, the founder of the Socialist Workers' Party UK, a speech by Michael Harrington, the founder of the Democratic Socialist of America, and yours truly filling in as Max Shackman from the Socialist Workers' Party USA. But the first part of our podcast, we will be discussing what does it mean to have a socialist on the Democratic Party ticket? So we all read the interview with Lee Carter in the November issue of Jacobin Magazine. Lee Carter is the Democratic Socialist who beat one of the Virginia Republican legislative leaders in the last local elections. So with that said, we hope you enjoy this special roundtable discussion. And we hope that you have a very happy holiday and a happy new year. 2018 guys get your shit together okay so let's talk lee carter in virginia he's the socialist on the ticket right that's that's the idea he's a socialist uh well he's not a socialist on the ticket he's a democrat on the ticket but he's a member of dsa right (laughs) so he's a socialist on the democratic party ticket which is i guess the theme of this conversation, what does it mean to be a socialist on the Democratic Party ticket? Or what does it mean to support the socialists on the Democratic Party ticket? What does Jacobin Mag article think that that's about? It's an interview with the candidate, and it's basically what he's for. So he has a, I think that one of the interesting parts of the interview is when he talks about how he came to the DSA, how he was a Sandinista, how he got excited. He was basically a discontented Democrat, he says, until Sanders came around. And then he said that basically this question of socialism was opened up to him under Sanders' campaign, mm-hmm. and that this the quote the interview his his own question his own response to one of the questions is that that the boogeyman this boogeyman of socialism really just meant uh, workers' democratic control. It didn't even really put it that way. I mean, he said specifically it, that the boogeyman means um, democracy in the workplace. Democracy. In the workplace, yeah. Which I think is an even weaker formulation. I mean, at least workers' democratic control could be construed in a much broader way, whereas, or, or you know, if you think back to the, the old Socialist Party of America and the Second International Parties more generally, they'd often, especially in the American context, frame it in terms of democracy in industry or industrial democracy. Mm-hmm. In other words, the democratic administration of the production process as a whole. You know, in in the European parties, I think you'd more often see the, the rhetoric of collectivizing the means of production, which you do see in the American tradition as well. But I think a more palatable way of putting it, uh, at least in the American context, was often democratization of industry or work or industrial democracy. 
But workplace democracy really just implies that, like, at any given workplace, the workers would have more say in how it's run, as opposed to society as a whole taking control of the industrial process as a whole and administering it in a democratic way. So it's a very washed out and watered down conception of what the economic democracy aspect of socialism even means. You know, which, I mean, Carter seems like a decent person, um, you know, a, discon a discontented Democrat that maybe could be won over to a more full-blooded conception of socialism. But it seems like he was won over to socialism on the basis of a, Bernie Sanders. a kind of emptying out. Yeah, on the basis of this, like, complete emptying out of, of what it used to mean. So I guess the, the Jacobin and DSA kind of gambit would be people like this can be gradually won over to a more radical idea of socialism, but we're just going to give them, like, a training wheels version to start with, maybe. So this guy came to socialism through the Bernie Sanders campaign, right? So his introduction... Well, he cites Richard Wolff and, like, workers' co-ops, that idea. Yeah. And like Verso and, and Jacobin, Jacobin and yeah. Verso, things like yeah. that. Right. He's always been a bit of the disgruntled Democrat, he says. But uh, with the Sanders campaign, they got me past my fear of the S word, as it did for millions of others. He keeps then saying, so I got into reading some works of economic theory, Jacobin, books from Verso Press and the economist Richard Wolff. And that's when he says, and I realized that this big, scary boogeyman is just democracy in the workplace. Okay. So democracy in the workplace. So... It is a nostalgia, though, for a certain kind of socialism. I think it's still tying into this tradition of David Harvey and the people's credit unions, this kind of rhetoric that was like around Occupy also, like the kind of class, the formulation of class during Occupy, which is like you, you can provide people with co-ops and credit unions and kind of like let the systems compete against one another, the mm -hmm. bourgeois uh, system and then the the ones that are run by workers and that are like giving small loans co-ops to like become you know institution this is kind of i don't know is it prudoian or is it i mean it, it's i was gonna say what's the difference between that approach and then like the kind of idea of just like capitalism would work better if we just excluded the greed aspect of human nature or if we're able to one percent yeah get rid of corruption that it would somehow work like the hysterical liberalism of anarchists What's the difference between Well, them? actually, I would say that it's not even that meaning one of the big things that his campaign run, run on was the slogan, take the money out of politics. Right. Yeah, corporate finances right? out of politics, this formulation. Right. And so, I mean, I don't see any particular, like, socialist aspect to that line, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems almost like the way he's putting it here is like, well, socialism, it's just this sort of um, negligible aspect to the whole thing. Like what we're really talking about is corruption uh, of the Democratic Party and, you know, the desire for all these different reforms. And socialism just means changing things in, you know, in the private sector in this particular way. But it's not like a big groundbreaking transformation of everything. Like that's the way he kind of mentions it in this interview, at least. Um, it's like, well, I got one over to it because it just doesn't seem that significant. Yeah, the Ackerman piece. The Blueprint for a New Party. The Blueprint for a New Party, the Seth Ackerman article in Jacobin, talks about the real Democratic Party. Like, it's this formulation. It's like the true democracy. So socialism is sort of just a real democracy. Like, that's what it comes in. And it is a question of what that means. Certainly, like, within the tradition of 
socialists back even back in the day in 1848 there there were claims that socialism was the real democracy was the true democracy but marx it seems was actually in polemics with these people in this formulation of socialism this just being a kind of realized bourgeois democracy i i i don't mean to sort of like read too much into this but the formulation of socialism by ackerman and implied here is that you know, the socialists just have to be better Democrats, and they can be better Democrats. Something that comes up in the UK is that democracy is treated by people who um, are, claim to be pursuing socialism as a stage on the way, right? So the idea with the Labour Party is that you democratise the Labour Party, and that then socialists can win on that basis. And it seems um, interesting that the DSA and Jacobin might have considered themselves to the left of Lee Carter, um, but that the a program of democratizing either the workplace or the Democratic Party would be seen as a um, a step prior to advancing a socialist program in some way. Well, Ackerman's not um, advocating for democratizing the Democratic Party, though. Um, you know, his argument is basically that the Democratic Party isn't even really that much of an institution. It's more of this kind of formal framework that is just built into the electoral process that can be used by anybody who seeks to use it. It's a question of how we're organizing to take advantage of it. So in that sense... Right, I think, yeah. if I can add, I think that the term, it's like a hollow shell, so right? Mm -hmm. like, I think that, that's, that that can just be molded and taken over and that that's the opportunity that it's hollow right. and it can be right. used up. So in terms of a true democratic party, Ackerman's goal is to build up an organization that can operate kind of on the margins of the democratic party, either running people as Democrats or endorsing Democrats or running independents or even running people under another banner, including the banner of that organization itself. Um, and in that sense, that should be a democratic organization. That should be like a really democratic organization. Um, in the way that the Democrats and are national not. organization. Yeah, yeah. Can I, sorry, I'm going to just read what he says in this model, a national organization would incorporate as a 501 C for social welfare organization, permitting it to endorse candidates and engage in explicit campaigning while accepting unlimited donations and spending unlimited amounts on political education. So it's just like, yeah, this instrument of like democratizing that's not in the democratic party, but necessarily needs to be like in the fringes of it. So there's no alliance to the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party cannot have alliances according to this argument in some sense because it's this hollow shell, but it also means that there's no membership. There's no real membership to the Democratic Party. So there's this like context of federalism in which like the Democratic Party is just like anything, but I don't know, people use it to be this conception of the party in this way. Um, not an institution, a kind of historical institution that upholds certain lessons of conflict in politics, that it learns how to act mm -hmm. over a period of time. Uh, there's another argument that's really like the Seth Ackerman, which is this Adam Hilton argument and organized for democracy left challenges inside the Democratic Party. And this is like, I think, a common conception of the Democratic Party as a sort of instrument as such that then one can like employ. Well, I, I also think it's interesting because Ackerman is very specifically focused on the American case and he treats it as a very unique case, at least with respect to other 
you know, democratic countries. Um, he likens the American system more to an authoritarian dictatorship or, or not, I don't know about a dictatorship, but like a, um, I think he says it's more like Russia, uh, than it is like Western Europe or Singapore. Mm -hmm. And, and so he's basically kind of saying, look, we can be our own party now and still run people as Democrats because it, the Democrat label doesn't really necessarily mean much and if we organize and distinguish ourselves um effectively it won't really matter what ballot line our candidates are on like that's kind of his point um which you know the thing that is strange to me about this article is he doesn't really talk about socialism at all i think he mentions the label democratic socialism at the beginning but he well he doesn't really talk about what the politics of this new party would be or why we need a new party in terms of the politics that are available. Um, the closest signal he gives is using the Labor Party, uh, the 1990s um, Labor Party effort as kind of a, a lesson. So it seems like maybe he's pushing towards a Labor Party or a party of the left or a progressive party, but there's nothing motivating a political distinction between a socialist and a non-socialist party. There's no reason why you wouldn't want to look like a Democrat in that sense. Um, if the distinction is just a matter of degrees, like more progressive version of the Democrats or something. Yeah, I think that an interesting thing that comes here is one is like, what is what these people actually understand the role of a party to be uh, significantly? Because mm -hmm. it seems like all this conversation, why the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America would put so much stress on the Democratic Party is because their vision is one of an electoral strategy. Right in which the Democrat they can use the electoral the the Democratic Party towards that electoral strategy, but that's both diminishing the potential of any party, but also diminishing of the potential of what socialists should be doing, attempting to use movementism and knocking on doors to get people elected into positions of power. But I'm really curious about or find it very strange that that's all that it's been reduced to. Um, both the, the Democratic Party and the using of the Democratic Party as an electoral strategy and their own, the Democratic Socialists of America independent strategy seems to right now be primarily around electoral strategies. I mean, I'm sympathetic to the problem in the article um, that they're raising, like bringing up the Labor Party as a counterexample yes. of like Tony Mazzocchi and how not to be afraid of playing a spoiler role. He seems to be making that point. But then he's like going on about how the U.S., just electorally is so, I guess, dictatorial or just not because of mm. parliamentary system. It's like, what else can you do but just try and sort of not necessarily work within the Democratic Party, but just try and take their base and exploit their base to build a new party? The assumption is that the socialists already exist. Lori, to respond to your characterization of the yep. emphasis in the electoral strategy. That's the assumption that they exist, they're out there, they've just been sort of suppressed and excluded from the state's capacity to rule over society by like people that are progressive because corporate finances have been like shielding it from entering. And now there's this opportunity. I mean, there is that argument also in the, in the article. There's an opportunity according to Ackerman precisely because of the Federal Elections Campaign Act and the fact that you don't have to use a political action committee for fundraising. And he, he makes an argument that we now live in this moment where we're constrained by corporate finance, but that these this legislation is 
giving people back power to organize themselves into institutions and then is proposing the institution and what it should look like. That's the argument. I think that's actually one of the best parts of the article. And in, in fact, he even pos gives a positive mention to the Citizens United Supreme Court case as helping to facilitate what he envisions happening. And I think from a purely, you know, technical organizational perspective, um, some of the recommendations he's making in that section might be strategically sound. The The major strategic concern I, I have with the whole thing is that, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, a socialist politics from the get go would have to very strictly demarcate itself from the politics of the Democratic and Republican parties um, as proposing something fundamentally different from what both of them have to offer. And so when he talks about the Democratic Party just being, and you'll hear this with DSA people a lot, like the Democratic Party is just this sort of loose amalgam of people that it doesn't have any kind of strict or organizational line or anything like that. It's like, well, yeah, of, of course, because all the Democratic Party stands for is propping up the status quo. It's not a specific vision that people are organizing around. It's just everyone bring their concerns about how we can keep things going the way they are most effectively. Whereas the whole point of having a socialist party would would be to say there's a very specific change that needs to happen that is incompatible with preserving things the way they are. And therefore the parties of the status quo, the parties of the ruling class will never stand for what this party will stand for. And that's why you strictly demarcate the socialists from the Democrats and the Republicans. Whereas what Ackerman is proposing because of his concern with the spoiler issue is very clearly the idea is very clearly to appeal to people who otherwise would be voting for the Democrats. It's not about pe appealing to people who the Democrats have lost or are threatening to lose. It's not about appealing to people that the Republicans have lost or are threatening to lose. And it's not about appealing to people that just don't vote or are independents or need a lot to be motivated to vote. Um, so it's, you know, he's he's clearly posing this new party as essentially something that is already in line with what the Democratic Party broadly catches within their wide net as opposed to something fundamentally different that needs to distinguish itself from that. Okay, just to play devil's advocate here, because I think that they wouldn't necessarily... Well, they would say, yeah, insofar as Sanders represents both like a departure from the Democratic Party, right, but needs to be hosted or needs to stand on the Democratic Party in order for it to be the kind of phenomenon that it was. Because people make that argument, right? And so, sure insofar as there's a Democratic Party ticket, it's obviously going to limit like a socialist politics. But how, right, this is the question, how, if not through the Democratic Party, do you do that? That's, you know, I mean, there's a very specific kind of pragmatic tone to all of this, which is why it reads, it is a kind of just electoral strategy. But the argument is that you can, in fact, organize for socialism. That's the argument. Social socialism socialism and quotes. democracy in the workplace i mean that is the key thing it's kind of part of the problem of the article that it's like what did, what do the socialists want like i mean you kind of find yourself asking like okay so you're gonna run on the democratic party ticket and you're right to say it's like well the socialists have to offer something fundamentally different from what's already existing it's part of their potential appeal uh, and so what do the socialists want? It's kind of assumed that the socialists are there and they want socialism. So this is one of the last questions, right, on the interview. The, the, the Jacobin interviewers ask, what's the future of democratic socialism in the electoral arena? And he mm. gives an answer. The future is bright. And so it goes to show that having unabashed support for working class issues, issues facing communities of colors, 
issues facing women and climate issues, having a solid stance that is unapologetic and saying you will fight tooth and nail on all these, on all these, and it works. So, but you actually still don't have an answer. You're just basically literally listing communities of mm-hmm. like discontent. Well, you know, in terms of the old socialist movement, what the socialists were fundamentally proposing, it wasn't about the specific demands on their platform. It wasn't about any specific policy that they were seeking to see instituted. It was about who was in control of the state. That was the fundamental question. And the whole point of a set of demands on a platform is not to say we want x y and z and we'll do whatever it takes to get x y and z it's to say we want to take power and when we take power this is what we will do and to build up the kind of organizational capacity where you can take control of all aspects of the state that's a much more serious project than being able to contest certain elections you know and it means appealing to people in a very different way i think why is it that the uh socialist party of america and the second international would have posed the problem in that way because it seems that that also poses a contradiction of democracy Mm -hmm. taking power of the state yeah in some ways um the demand for democracy is to be in control of the state and yet that seems um inadequate Right. And then at the same time, the uh, necessity is posed in those parties uh, historically of taking state power. And that also poses the contradiction of democracy. When the bourgeoisie is taking state power in 1848, though, they don't consider it to be bourgeois rule, right? They consider it to be a kind of right. like rule for the people. So it's the working class that has to make the the class dimension of democracy explicit and has to say the workers have to seize the state because the bourgeoisie right now is in control of the state. And this class line that's drawn means that the state is not just instrument from on its own, but that after 1848, it's the class state. I mean, I, it does. So I, I think, I guess maybe we just sound like Orthodox or something now mm-hmm. because I don't, I don't know why this has been completely lost. Like that, you know, <laughs> that there's a class dimension to, the state and yes so people like um adam hilton can say is the democratic party a bourgeois party i don't know let's see where their funding comes from this is the way that people think about class now i guess well one thing we should be careful of is that it's not like um it's not like there is a socialist politics out there and that it's some these people just like are thinking wrong or that they ha- haven't seen it the attempts to uh, take up the Democratic Party and its transformation or using it as an empty vessel is because there isn't anything out there. And it does, it is unclear what a socialist politics would be. Yes. Now here's a clip from Michael Harrington, one of the leading spokesmen and among the founders of the Democratic Socialist of America. Harrington is speaking to an audience in 1979 on the problem of socialists taking state power. One of the dirtiest things history ever did to the Western European socialist movement after World War I was to give them power. Because they got into power and they're running the society. They're no longer agitating on a street corner. They're no longer organizing. They're running Germany. They're running Britain. They're running Austria. And they suddenly 
realized that they didn't know. They've been talking about socialism for a 50, 75, or 100 years. They didn't know what it meant in real life. They had no transition. And what they did, in fact, was they said, we socialists, when we get to socialism, whatever that is, we'll run society in a socialist way. But since we now have power in a capitalist society, we will run it in a capitalist way. Well, we start, look, can we start there? Because I know there's a connection here. And the romance with the 30s, that, you know, sort of nostalgia for FDR, that was part of the Sanders campaign. And because it does talk about the, the vision of the state as kind of managerial force that then can be used to provide services to like working people. And it's that vision of the neo, the new deal, like liberal um, state that the socialists can have a role in like activating this. Um, and it's, I think in many of the events that Platypus members have gone to in America, the high point or the high watermark of the American communist is seen as the 1930s. Like there's a sort of mm. agreement, I think, across a great part of the left on this. And I certainly know that's the democratic socialist of America's reading of things. Yeah, it raises a question about what was the early 20th century of the Socialist Party and why not look at the 1930s also as a period in which labor was uh, became depoliticized in some sense and was absorbed by the machinery of the, the state. And there's, there's that problem, too, that just kind of gets swept under the rug or something. Well, there's the growth of the Communist Party at that time, which can lead to a certain, um, yeah. a, a specific reading of that history, I guess, that that because of its growth, that that's the high watermark. It's not just its growth, it's its public emergence in the first place in the United States, because the Communist Party was underground throughout the entirety of the 20s. It's only in the 30, or it's either underground or operating in other formations. It's not operating as a party into itself. And it's really only until 34 that the above-ground Communist Party, I don't even think, I'm not sure if it was even called the Communist Party at that point, I think it might have been called the Workers' Party. It was operating on its own, but by 34, it was essentially committed to supporting the Democratic Party, supporting the New Deal, and then with the advent of World War II, with a brief exception during the period of the, the Hitler-Stalin Pact, it's vigorously supported the the war effort, including within the union movement. So, you know, during the... Th Against strikes. Yeah. Right. So during the thir 30s, you have the CIO forming and competition within the, the CIO for leadership among communists and socialists, with the communists being the pro-war mm -hmm. faction and the socialists being the anti-war faction. Mm -hmm. The Taft-Hartley was 1947, right? That's right. That's right. That's kind of after the dust, the dust settles with all this stuff. Right. Which is, you could say, right, you could tell this history, which you've just told, and you could say, okay, the 30s, <laughs> right? I mean, the unfolding problem of labor and the left, in a sense, becoming like a depoliticizing tool, actually, for labor and for like labor institutions. So there's that question of the 30s. Well, that's certainly one aspect that today I can't like forgive anybody who supports the Democratic Party is like the, the how much they've paid attention to the degree that the Democratic Party has been forcing the absolute liquidation of any power that labor unions had in the United States. Because it's not a historical institution, you see. It's an instrument. So we don't have to contend with this history. Because at the end of the day, it's sort of whatever... 
either corporate power makes it out to be. Well, that seems pretty neat, neatly apologetic. It's like we don't even have to apologize for them because uh, they really didn't do it. It was outside forces. Yeah, you know, and and you get a lot of apologetics around the communist party support for the Democrats during the Popular Front period out of the threat of well, fascism, fascists. right? And the virtuous role of the United States in the allies, the allied powers in World War II. Um, so, you know, there's kind of an apologia for the Popular Front era. And then people just kind of forget about the Communist Party. I mean, you know, after World War II, they supported, you know, they were they were kind of the a, a major core of the, the Henry Wallace campaign, which was... And he was sort of like a Bernie Sanders-esque figure if Bernie Sanders had run as an independent instead of, you know, accepting not getting the Democratic nomination. You know, the sort of dissident, independent Democrat candidate. And after that, you know, the Communist Party sort of washes out. And it's only at that point that the Red Scare suppression of the communists is really ramped up by the Democratic Party. But they were kind of just cleaning up what was left. You know, it wasn't really like... It's not like that's when the communists bit the dust. They kind of had fallen on their faces with the Wallace campaign, um, if not earlier. So I'm just wondering, with all of this history, how is it that we're seeing it expressed in the DSA and candidates like Lee Carter today? Um, obviously, all of this stuff is coming up for us to talk about. But what is it that's, you know, that, what is it that we're able to like squeeze of this history out of these phenomena now? Well, it's it's the formulation that was offered at the beginning of our conversation, which is this workplace democracy that has replaced what socialism could mean, right? In some sense, we've been complaining just about this formulation. I don't think it's arbitrary. It's because the the idea that by holding a co-op or something, you're fulfilling the historical tasks of socialists seems to be rather meager, like the kind of utopic imagination of the socialist is essentially that of I don't know, self, self-professed self radical liberals or confused radical liberals or something. I Okay. It assumes a working state. You can have the New Deal state, right? You can have the state that works for the people. You can provide services to impoverished communities through the state. You can give credits to working people. You can support co-ops. And, and that's the imagination of the socialists. But... Okay. Progressive capitalism. Well, okay, but no, but they think it's not capitalism. They think that it is socialism. That's socialism. Meaning if they would say, like, we think there's such a thing of progressive capitalism, and then they would say, this is what we think progressive capitalism is, right? That would be better because it would be more honest. But instead they're like, no, this is the vision that socialists have, and it's just like a better democracy. Um, again, this is the, the polemics of someone like Marx versus Proudhon and, and these people in 1848 is that, you know, on the one hand, you're talking about realizing bourgeois democracy or something uh, versus the dictatorship of the proletariat. And there's like that whole question of what would it mean to say that the New Deal state would lead to anything like the dictatorship of the proletariat. This reminds me of Naomi Klein, I have to say. Like, there is a reason why Naomi Klein during the 2008 aftermath of the 2008 economic crisis is, like, wholeheartedly speaking in defense of the New New Deal and is at the same time pointed to as Argentina at the Las Recuperadas factories that the workers took over after the economic crisis in Argentina and she's saying that's the revolution. Yeah, and then what happened? The state sent troops... And that was it. 
Yeah, all that had to do is that the Kappas came back. She's like, hey, we want our factories back. It's, so, it's yeah, especially, so. you know, funny because at the time it was very clear, at least within the socialist movement, that the New Deal was antithetical to the aims of the socialists. Um, and in fact, it was very common to insinuate that it had more in common with fascism than it did with socialism. Fascism was sort of a new phenomenon at the time, and it didn't yet have the, the kind of extra ugly tinge given to it by national socialism in Germany. Um, so I'm talking about like the 20s and early 30s. You know, it's it's Mussolini is what people are looking at. But it was very clear to socialists at the time that that agenda was that agenda, first of all, at least in the United States, had already been in popular circulation for decades, going back to the 1890s and the first decade of the 20th century under the rubric of progressivism, which was very explicitly understood to be the state taking more control over how the economy functions. And that was not what the socialists stood for. They were seen they saw themselves and were seen as the enemies of the socialists. Even the Communist Party, I believe up until 33, was criticizing Roosevelt's vision in the New Deal as, as fascism, as incipient fascism. It's only when they take up the popular front line in 1934 that they that all gets washed away. But it holds up because the early New Left, the early 1960s New Left, would recognize and call the New Deal authoritarian. Right. It rejected the New Deal on authoritarian claims, which the later New Left forgets. Well, the real question is why did the Democratic Party get looked at as left-wing? In the 30s or in the 60s? Well, were they seen as left-wing in the 30s? I mean, they had this communist attachment from for the second half of the 30s, but, you know, did the communists attach to them because they looked like the left-wing party? Hmm. Yeah. Like, why FDR? Well, I mean, I think that would have probably been their argument, but that wasn't how the Democrats were understood before the 30s. Um, they weren't seen as the left-wing party versus the Republicans as the right-wing party. Um, both well, parties... Republicans were the party of labor for a while. Right. Both parties had conservative and you know, progressive and all, all sorts of different factions like that. But but it's really, I think... But the real switch doesn't happen until LBJ. Right. That's right? what I was going to say. Is it's So, you know, there's a later chapter in this history of the, the left liquidating itself into the Democratic Party, which is the period from, like, around 59 to, you know, I mean, till today, really, which is which doesn't come out of the Communist Party. The Communist Party was was a husk. And frankly, so was the Socialist Party in this period, but the Socialist Party was fortuitously um, taken over in 1959 by a former follower of Leon Trotsky, Max Schachman, and, and his group, who broke with the Trotskyist movement in 39, precisely over the Hitler-Stalin pact issue. From Max Schachman. Writing on the Russian question, October 1939, for the American Socialist Workers' Party International Bulletin. He writes, Is there anything new in the situation to cause us to change our policy? Yes. And in reality, everybody acknowledges it. If not explicitly, then tactically. Is it because of the pact with Hitler? If so, then you're a people's fronter. No, that is a slander. I have already pointed out that the questions we now raise were first raised three months ago, at the time of the Soviet alliance with the democratic imperialists. No, it is not the pact itself that changes the situation. I have pointed out a hundred times, in articles and speeches, that an isolated Soviet state not only may but often must conclude commercial, diplomatic, 
and even military agreements with imperialist powers, and that there is not a particle of difference in principle between an agreement with a democratic country, a fascist country, or a feudal country. So it is not the pact itself that necessitates a change in our policy. It is the concreteness of the events, and it is doubtful that we could have foreseen them in their actuality. And the actuality, if only because of its concreteness, is different from our necessarily limited prognoses, as different as arithmetic is from algebra. of Trotskyists in the 50s in um, attempting to uh, do entry work in other existing parties is something that comes up in the Ian Birchall interview. Oh, great. PR number 102 this, this month. So it's interesting that connection with Trotskyists in the States in the 50s and what they thought was possible and what they were trying to do mm. uh, from a very small and isolated uh, position, really. So the Birchall interview is partly dealing with uh, the figure of Tony Cliff, who moved to the UK from Israel in the 1950s, was in this small Trotskyist milieu, and there were various attempts to think about how they how they're going to relate to the Communist Party of Great Britain, and more uh, prominently, how are they going to relate to the Labour Party? Yeah, I think that the big thread in the Ian Birchall interview, if we're switching gears, then really is the relationship for basically five or six decades of this Trotskyist organization and multiple Trotskyist organizations relationship to the Labour Party uh, with a brief like interlude around the 68 and 70s moment. Uh, but even yet, the question sort of remains there all throughout. Yeah, no, I think that there's continuity through this question of how the DSA is running candidates in the United States and its relationship and this history of the relationship of the left, of the quote-unquote socialists in the United States to the Democratic Party, to that really also is strongly represented in the Ian Birchall interview of what is the Trotskyist left or the socialist left or the Trotskyist within the socialist left relationship to the Labour Party across decades, even starting from the 50s all the way to present day, all the way up to Corbyn. So there's also this parallel that is being drawn that we can draw between the Sander, Sandernistas, the Sanders supporters, and the follow-up after Sanders' campaign to what is happening today in the UK with Corbyn and the Corbynistas. Well, I think one of the things is that these, you know, looking back on this history now, um, what it seems is that these various attempts to um, transform these parties, um, whether it's the Democrats in the uh, late 60s or the British Labour Party um, in the early to mid-60s, um, or then again in the 80s, for example, is that the uh, fresh blood that these socialists have brought into the into these established parties has actually ended up saving the parties rather than transforming them. Um, so one of the interesting things that came up when I was speaking to Ian Birchall is this um, organization called the Young Socialists, which the Labour Party founded in 1960 to, uh, basically the way he puts it is that they saw the campaign for nuclear disarmament and all these young people protesting in the late 50s and early 60s in the UK and they were like, we need some of that energy. 
we've lost three elections on the trot. And um, so they set up this youth organization and suddenly everyone floods into it. And the three Trotskyist groups in the UK, um, the Grantites, the Heliites and the Cliffites, as they're known by their leaders' names, um, kind of went in there to try and themselves um, attract young people to their organisations. And I think that kind of dynamic in which um, people on the to the left of the Labour Party get drawn in and actually bring people into the organisation is one that we've seen repeat across the second half of the 20th century. So it was interesting, that specific example coming up in the interview. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things to think about the present and in relation to this history is that it always appears as if it's an uprising, a growing, an expansion, a sort of a mushrooming of the left in these moments where there's closeness to um, these these more established political parties. Uh, but nonetheless, there is something that does not quite translate to what these smaller organizations wanted to translate into. Whether or not they're particularly clear what those goals are is also a matter of open discussion, but it seems to always, they sort of like, seem to be an upswing of a wave of expansion, but it turns out to have looked now retrospectively as further and further liquidation into these grand parties. What's good about the Burchell is that it makes that kind of question explicit. He he says, the problem is, if you're an organization like the Socialist Workers Party, what do you do? For quite a long time, the SWP was saying perfectly correct things in support of Corbyn and not much else. And that same section in the next paragraph, he basically says, so we ended up being tailists, right? I mean, the, or the SWP ended up being tailists. And... I guess perhaps it's because he has enough distance between him and the organization that he can make such a judgment call. And he's clear to say that he's not trying to provide a blanket criticism of the SWP, um, but but he is kind of getting at the heart of the problem, which is that they end up tailing behind the Labour Party, being both their last, their 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 asset, like a resource or whatever, but not providing political leadership either. And so they tail after the Labour Party. Whereas I don't know how much of that self-consciousness is available uh, with the Sandernistas or uh, I don't know if there's a recognition that, you know, all of this might just be tailing the Democrats. I, there's like a refusal. There's like an implicit refusal to not even consider the problem because the the response to it. I think that they're, they got the answer to that question from the beginning. I, I find like all these formulations about the democratic party being a hollow show they're already well that's what i'm what i'm saying is that that's actually not dealing with the so when you say it's a tactical problem right and then it's not a political leadership right. problem because the political leadership is already there and so it's just about installing it and so you can then say well we're not going to be tailing after the democrats anyway because the democrats what are the democrats right like it's like is it a bourgeois party really and what we just have to do is how to crack the code so that, you know, we can have a shot at ruling or something. That's what I was going to bring up earlier was the, the young socialist point from the Birchall interview and how that's how the IST actually got a lot of members. As long as uh, the point that was expressed in the Ackerman Jacobin article is there, like as long as we're still seen or the left is still seen 
the sort of uh, labor-friendly mainstream parties as the lesser evil, what what are any of these movements going to amount to, apart from bolstering them or energizing them periodically? But it, that poses problem of the inside outside the party. So that seems obvious when, for example, they're doing things like projects like the DSA, for example, or like Momentum in the Labour Party now, um, or like the Young Socialists, which is an official Labour organisation that socialists enter, or that Trotskyists enter. But what was interesting in the Birchland interview as well was this other example of the Anti-Nazi League. So where they're explicitly doing something that seems like totally unrelated to mainstream electoral politics and that it has this you know riots in the street rock against racism this kind of like real countercultural currency that actually that itself was building um a kind of consensus around support for the labor party whilst it's regenerating the labor party from it there's a really interesting quote in the Ian Birchall's biography of Tony Cliff, the founder of the IS and SWP, from the Labour Party leader of the 1980s, Neil Kinnock, who famously, you know, witch-hunted Trotskyists out of the Labour Party when he was leader, who actually took part in the Anti-Nazi League and talked about the very important role it played for the Labour Party. So there's a real recognition from these mainstream politicians that actually these things are important, like what these things are actually doing. If I could just jump on that point, because um, there was something about the Ackerman article that really bothered me, which was there's the section where he just kind of takes for granted that the left has always had this kind of modus operandi of working within the Democratic Party or else going back, you know, he kind of traces it back until uh, to the 80s, I think. But he just kind of suggests like, well, it's always been the case that the Democratic Party has been a vehicle the left has tried to use. Whereas the DSA is, he doesn't really mention at all, but DSA's historical strategy going back to its formation and going back into the 60s, um, into the the Shackmanite leadership of the old Socialist Party, which um, at the end of the 60s, in the early 70s, disintegrated and DSA was born out of its remnants. But that strategy was, you know, it was specifically a strategy of transforming both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party by making a conscious intervention within the Democratic Party. It wasn't about trying to advance the agenda for socialism per se. The assessment of the Shackmanites was very pessimistic, but also kind of very ambitious, which was basically, we're a long ways from having anything like a socialist movement again. So we have to kind of start getting the pieces in order for an eventual rebirth of socialism. And the first step towards that is to rebuild the foundation of the labor movement, which is entirely within the remit of the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party is controlled by these horrible racist Dixiecrats, as well as, you know, warmongers and all these other types. So how can we rescue what's left of the labor movement? Maybe we can chase out everything undesirable from the Democratic Party and force it into the Republican Party. And that was the Shackmanite realignment strategy. And that was still what DSA was trying to do up until, basically until the 1980 election, when they tried to essentially... So they'd been trying to push different factions against each other all that time. And then they kind of stopped doing that in the 80s and 90s. And now they just kind of take... They, they, they no longer have this sense of a strategy of trying to drive a wedge within the existing Democratic Party and transforming its internal composition in some kind of fundamental way. Now they're just kind of trying to tag along 
on the fringes of the Democratic Party to assert their own agenda where they can. It's a much less ambitious program, but in a sense, it's even more pessimistic, I, I would say, than, than the Shackmanite strategy, because they've just forgotten about what socialism means altogether instead of seeing it as something that's no longer viable even in the short term. They just forgot what it meant. But this is the nation that begins with the interview early on. He talks about Cliff being really concerned about the isolation of Trotskyists. So basically, the whole history of the SWP is struggling against the to navigating this problem of like fear of being isolated and irrelevant with collapsing yourself into the Corbin. And there is something to be said about the fact that it's true. Like if you don't address Corbin right now, you're just going to be entirely out of touch with what's actually happening. Like there's something there, like it has to be said, right? Like just as there's something else that we cannot just be entirely detached about the Sandernistas moment. But the issue is, right, like the, the perspective of, of Birchall, which he lays out very early, which is the perspective of Cliff, is the fear of isolation and being entirely irrelevant to the course that history takes. Well, Virgil does say in the interview, uh, he does say that it would be like a ridiculous kind of ultra left sectarianism to not support Corbyn or to point out that he's not a real revolutionary. But it's like, I don't know, isn't this tendency to uncritically accept whatever weakened or blunted like echo of past revolutionary movements on the left precisely what's contributed to its liquidation? I think just to clarify one thing earlier, um, about what Birchall said, the ultra-leftism. The ultra-leftism would be not to support Corbyn. That's what he said. Not be in touch with the moment. No, because there was a kind of later formulation that Laurie introduced about not being sort of in touch with the moment or thinking about what it could mean, right? Like that one has to be tasked with thinking about what it means in the present, that there's such a thing as the Corbyn phenomenon. That's certainly the case, it seems to me. But the formulation that he provided was of supporting Corbyn or one is an ultra leftist. And so there's an assumption there, again, that the left exists and one has to support it so that it could continue to exist. And that taking a critical position to the already existing left is to be outside of the left in an unproductive way. Right. And it it is like Godard was bringing it up. Right. It's like a spoiler, like concerns like, well, like, are you really going to drive votes away from Corbyn? Right, is that what your activity amounts to? There's two things there in a certain way. On the one hand, there's the early history of the Trotskyist movement, um, and in particular, Tony Cliff, um, uh, as a young Trotskyist in Palestine, um, basically there were like five guys, um, and they were going around distributing leaflets off bicycles in British Mandate Palestine, convinced that World War II was going to bring the revolution. And, you know, and that kind of isolation continues when he moves to Britain in the 50s. So, yes, he does want to, Birchall really shows how desperate Cliff was to really grow and not be an an isolated, tiny sect. At the other end of the scale, um, what Audrey's bringing up is like the present political moment, right? What does it mean that there is something there when there's 500,000 people in the Labour Party? Um, what does it mean that right. politics seems to be shifting its tectonic plates in this moment? And I think what happens is is that 
politics, capitalist politics, starts realigning itself, and people on the left think think that this means people are becoming radicalized, or that they're becoming left wing. Um, yeah. it's not actually clear that the two things are the same. So there's right. this crisis of politics at the moment and Brexit and Trump and the evidence of this. And his presentation of the Draper, the two souls of socialism, is that of from above and from below, right? That you can have socialism from the leaders or socialism from the people. And in some sense, what Birchall is later describing as the SWP being tailist is this kind of formulation that we're just taking our cues from the people. It's this kind of double misrecognition. One, the role of the left could play, the socialist left could play, and the second misrecognition is that of the Labour Party and what it actually does. Mm. Like, does the Labour Party in any meaningful way represent the people? It's also like a narrow perspective on what political leadership could mean because the fear is that if people are supporting Corbyn, um, then they're not going to take you seriously until you say the same thing. So you support him as well, and then you try and slip in, you know, in the pub afterwards. <laughs> oh, by the way, there's this thing called Marxism, you know. Yeah. Do you want to, like, <laughs> read this home-printed flyer? And um, it's like a narrow perspective on what political leadership could give to people to lead them to somewhere not the, not their starting place. I mean, I know, by the way, I know that in the UK that, you know, the CPG has to make an argument about the Labour Party still being like a, pay, a party of the workers, right? Like they have to... Oh, it's, 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 it's turned into something a lot more extreme at this point. Oh, yeah? What is it now? <laughs> I haven't read the latest Weekly Worker. Um, in the latest Weekly Worker, there is a set of um, theses about how the Labour Party could be transformed at the next election if Corbyn is elected. Um, And it includes various um, propositions about um, the dismantling of the standing army, um, the creation of a a workers' militia with primitive weapons, um, storming supermarkets, and then some kind of Pinochet-style coup um what and this is oh, all shit, by 2020 this is all like within the next three <laughs> to four years right in time for no President no no, no. they think that there will be a coup oh it's gonna happen oh. if corbyn wins there would be a pinochet style coup against corbyn oh oh oh, power. oh oh so the americans mm. would back a coup the Amer- they they argue that the americans would uh cause a run on the pound Here's one of the founders of the Socialist Workers' Party, Tony Cliff, in an interview in 1996 talking about the growth of the party after the Vietnam War. Especially because Howard Wilson was the darling of the left, and therefore the left expected from him things. And because of that, when the Vietnam demonstration took place, the Vietnam Solidarity Campaign took place in October 1968, with 100,000 people, we grew to 1,000 members in a period of few months. You know, I mean, I mean, you see, it was a very, very slow process. Also, what happened in 1956, the Hungarian Revolution took place. 
So there was a crack in Stalinism. It was not collapse of Stalinism, far from it. There was a little bit of crack. Then there was the Vietnam War, a bigger crack in laborism because they supported the Americans. And they gave us an opening. And we grew to a thousand. Uh, we start, continued a thousand until 1971, 72. Then came the big industrial struggles, right? And we grew to 3,000 in 74. Uh, because we were always very active. And we were not choosy. I'll tell you what I mean with not choosy. We always said that when there is a struggle and we support it, we have to support it practically. We, we agreed with Lenin that the revolution is at the tribunal of the oppressed. Uh, therefore, if workers go on strike for high wages, he's a reunionist. If he goes, he goes on strike against the beating of Jews or beating of students, then he's a revolutionary. We always identified with oppressed, and I know the Vietnam is 6,000 miles, whatever it is, away, but we identify ourselves with Vietnam, and that's why we grew. It's interesting how his memory works. Like, I heard the audio of this interview because it was on Radical Minds, and then I now read this transcript. But there, there are these kind of critical pauses when you ask him questions that you can really sense in the audio of this interview. And at some point he says, which is still in the record, he just doesn't remember what the differences were between some of these groups and certain issues. Like he yeah. just sort of says like, um, or things are a bit sort of muddy, right? I mean, which is to be expected. This is not like, a, but it's just what gets lost that is also... Well, he gets lost, but he still brings up. He's like, these things were important, but I just can't But he does remember this one bit about Cliff not supporting the Vietnam movement at the beginning of the movement, and then having this moment where he changes his mind, and you kind of wonder, again, if it's a matter of this fear of isolation, and again, the impulse of tailing behind that which is moving, right? And whether or not it's an opportunity for the left in the way that Birchall still at the end of the whole interview, you know, you ask him like the the moments where things could have changed and he thinks that this is a moment things could have changed. And you I don't know, I get the sense, oh okay, so Tony Cliff had like a good instinct, right? And then he was just like sort of swept by the current of, of events. Uh did precisely what a socialist is not supposed to do. So it's like not to provide a standpoint from which to like have some perspective of the present and where the direction it ought to go. Well, the other example is Kidron in the interview, which stayed even more distant from this. Yeah, um, I think he's an interesting uh, character that comes up in the interview. Um, this is around the Vietnam War. Um, there's this kind of tension within the IS at the time in 67. The younger members want to get really involved in Vietnam anti-war solidarity and the older members are like very reticent and they're very wary of the third worldism and there's this kind of critical moment and then it like they go heavily into the vietnam solidarity campaign and i think it's an he he's remembering that tension now he looks back and he's like you know in some ways kidron was right yeah, exactly mike kidron wrote a book in 1968 in which he talks about the American decision to withdraw from Vietnam. And he's like, in 1968. <laughs> and then he's like, but yeah, he was right. Yeah. It didn't appear as such, but by 68, the decision was made and he got onto that. He also assesses Kidron as saying Kidron could see the longer term. But he couldn't see the shorter term, which we and... should take seriously. I mean, um, 
the question of whether the 60s was a moment where something could have happened yeah, is one that we need to like hold open. Yeah, so this is the, the claim that Birchall is making, that that's where Kidron was uh, wrong. So according to him, Kidron was wrong, firstly, by failing to understand that states sometimes act irrationally, and secondly, underestimating the political importance of a mass movement against the war in the United States and around the world, and how this opened new horizons for the revolutionary left. So this is the period that he's calling 68 to 75 as being like this opening. Iraq war. It was the same thing with the Iraq war. <laughs> this is like the anti-imperialism of the new left is an opportunity, right? Like that being against the United States is in some ways like a way of advancing a left agenda. And the state acts irrationally. I mean, what the state acts irrationally. What does this mean here? It's an SWP thing. It, it's it's um he references a book by alex klinikos at that point i guess what i would say about that is what's interesting about that moment coming up having talked about the earlier history of the young socialists and the labor party is that the vietnam stuff is really also to do with the crisis in the labor party people are pissed off that the labor party are not more strongly against the vietnam war and that they're tacitly supporting the americans um, so it's really still an issue of them being Labour Party supporters. Ian Birchall. I think uh, it was always important to us uh, to look to the tradition of the Russian Revolution. You know, and, uh, and particularly the early years of the Russian Revolution, the notion, notions of, uh, of working-class democracy, particularly as expressed in the, in the, in the Soviets. You know, the, the idea of uh, direct working-class power um, and the way that... Uh, I mean, there's always a danger of oversimplifying here, but the way in which um, Trotskyism had stood for what was best about the early years of the Russian Revolution as against the way that had been uh, uh, distorted and uh, betrayed um, by, um, by Stalinism in the subsequent years. Uh, earlier, what you talked about the new left, recognizing the New Deal moment as conservative in America, Right, in part is because the communists are supporting the war effort, right? I mean, they're they're against the strikes because like the the weapons need to be made for war. Uh the new left is also responding to this legacy of the American left being absorbed into the state. Well, I think, you know, the new left really underestimated the conservative role the Communist Party was playing in that period. Um there's a lot of romanticizing of the Communist Party as the more radical half of the American left, whereas the Socialist Party were treated as the conservative or, or sort of analogized to the way the social democracy versus communism in Europe in the same period were thought of. But the Social Democratic Parties of Europe were in a very different position than the Socialist Party was. You know, the Socialist Party was never 
in ever even close to being in the position of being a governing party and the democratic party played some of the same functions that the social democratic parties played in europe or the labor party played in the uk whereas the socialist party was just kind of out on the woods um it's interesting too because in the same period in the late 60s you know the socialist party had really led the the early half of the the 60s revival with the civil rights movement you know it was socialist party organizers that were behind the march on washington in 63 for example um this was a big mm -hmm. part of the shackmanite strategy of mm -hmm. uniting the civil rights movement with the labor movement and using the democratic mm -hmm. party as the vehicle mm -hmm. to do that um but by the late 60s the anti-stalinism of the shackmanites made them very reticent to criticize the vietnam war effort yeah. whereas the new left was so militantly opposed to the vietnam war that it led them to turn against lbj's own you know redoubling of the new deal with his great society and war on poverty policies well i guess one of the pam you mentioned before about like it's interesting how his memory's working in the interview um one of the things with the vietnam war is that i asked him what like made their position a Marxist position and he just says like it wasn't maybe it wasn't maybe we didn't have a distinctive line and so I think part of the memory issue is is actually having that chance to say well maybe we weren't we didn't have a distinctive line on it yeah yeah and the other thing is you know to go to what Reed was just saying about the the radical position on the Vietnam War when I asked him about the comparison of the anti-Iraq war movement and the anti-Vietnam war movement, he says that the diff one of the differences was that with Vietnam, they were in the streets chanting Ho 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 Chi Minh because they actually wanted that side to wait, win. Wait, wait, but I have an anecdote about this. <laughs> Ho 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 Chi Minh came up in the new SDS with the FRSO for the Democratic Central Elections, where the FRSO got voted into the Central Committee of the new SES, the Temporary Central Committee, the FRSO kids, in front of like 100 and 200 anarchists, Marxists, whatever, in the new SES, started, they huddled and they just started chanting, Ho, 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 Ho Chi Minh. This is like 2007, 2008. 2008. So it still continued. And when I read that in the interview, I just couldn't believe 2008. And when I read that in the summer of 2008, right? It was in the, the summer to, before the Obama to, election. God, to, yeah, to the Obama election. Oh. It was the summer before Obama. <sighs> yeah. It was the summer oh, before the Obama, Obama election. <laughs> no, but I, just like that was what was funny because Ephraim, you're about to basically point. You're, Ephraim was about to like point to a difference to like the Maoism. Say, hey, no, by the way, that actually lived on into the anti-Iraq war movement as well. The dude is dead. <laughs> well, worse. I mean... Because he says, you know, we weren't doing that. There, there might have been a few who wanted Iraq to support and to wanted Iraq to win the war, but like we would never have seen that. So we weren't chanting, you know, victory to Iraq. But of course, the famous thing that people were chanting in London in 2006 was we are all Hezbollah. There you go. Or the enemy of my there enemy is my friend. That is true. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm sorry. Yeah, of course, it's like less coherent also because, you know, Ho Chi Minh is not alive so what the hell does it mean i mean you're supporting the legacy of ho chi minh can someone explain to me what that is precisely i mean i'm actually sure that a maoist on this show would be able to explain to me what it is but to me right now in the iraq war movement like hearing ho chi minh in the room filled with the liberal the radical liberals and the anarchists of the new sds was bizarre not like they knew anything to say i mean 
Yeah, but the problem is that in response yes. to those people, the liberals just red baited them. That's another interview in the Paripas review you can read, Red Baiting and the SDS. Uh, if anybody wanted to look back into that history, by the way. Oh, so, you know, we, we do have to wrap up, but I wanted to just bring up this article in the Platypus Review from a while back by Ian Morrison, the old left and new, the post-war balance sheet article. Because the formulation of memory and what are the things that the left has to do today, which is sort of give itself a history, kind of like the question of the philosophy of history in the utopic imagination of the left. What Morrison is arguing in his article is that it's not the 30s, but really it's the teens and the 20s, right, that pose the questions of the American left. And what ends up happening, the deterioration of the socialist tradition into the state and into the Democrats. But the question is posed much earlier. And he argues it's not it's not a matter of just Stalinism. It's not a matter of like Stalinization of the of the socialists or something like this. It's taken for granted that the 1930s are the high watermark of American leftism. You know, it's kind of a missed opportunity maybe to revisit some of the bigger questions that the left should face. Yeah, I just wanted to say that because there there is this conversation about the Democratic Party that we've already started in Platypus a long time ago. Can I just add one more thing about the um, the Birchall as well? Is that you know the inheritance of the uh, anti-war movement in two thousand and six of cliffism, and you know we're talking about this connection between the anti-Vietnam War movement and anti-Iraq War movement. The cliffite left the SWP in the UK really did have a huge impact on the left scene, and is something that still needs to be reckoned with in a certain way. And also, I think what Birchall was really wrestling with in the humongous biography that he wrote of Tony Cliff is the fact that this was someone who attempted to receive a tradition and put it into action at the same time um, and to deal with his present reality. And that's still missing in, missing in our present. We're still like, that still seems like kind of strange to us. It's interesting listening to him talk about what an impressive figure people like Tony Cliff and Mike Kidron were that people were just kind of drawn to them as speakers in this way. And that's part of the history that he's trying to convey. And he's like, I can't even explain to you what it was like listening to Tony Cliff talk, you know, that kind of thing. But again, that's also a history that's like disappearing with with people like Ian Birchall. I think that that's the, one of the great summations of, of the interview is that we really are tapping into a six-decade political experience of... Ian Birchall with this interview and it's an incredible resource to the legacy that leads up to the formation of the IS and the foundation of the SWP and the history of basically one of the most significant non-parliamentary left organizations in the UK. Uh, the Socialist Workers Party. Yes, the social the SWP, the Socialist Workers Party, uh, which whether for good or for ill is something that the majority of the left of the last two or three decades at least definitely has revolved around, even if it has been on the grounds of splits or counter-identification. Uh, and the interview really does provide a first-person account of that history and that transformation that that organization or those organizations went through, uh, including, of course, its significant turns in the new left to whatever's happening today after its 2012 or 2013 crisis. Including its aporias and its sort of missing self-recognition, moments of self-consciousness, right? Which, which I think is like a component part of the interview. It's kind of questions about what it all sort of added up to, what it meant, 
um, and what it meant to end up as a tailist to the Labour Party. I was going to say, I was struck in that interview, just as like a newcomer to Marxism, I was struck by, um, I think, how Birchall was talking about how Cliff emphasized the need to not read Marx and Engels and Lenin Trotsky as scripture, but to like, historically situate them. You know, rather than trying to extract some like perfect internally consistent theory once and for like an Archimedean point for socialism, but yet it ended up he ended up sort of founding like umbrella organizations for the sectarian left, like the poster child of the sectarian left in a lot of ways in the second half of the twentieth century. I felt very sympathetic to to him and, and where they were coming from at the time. I think it's easier said than done to sort of look back on it and, and say what they should have done or how, what they should have, they where they went wrong theoretically or in terms of action. I found that, I found that, I was kind of struck by that, I guess. Yeah, so. on the one hand, that's a, a, it's a pessimistic position, right, which is Cliff saying, well, we can't be Trotsky now. Um, on the other hand, it's a very optimistic position. The fact, the idea that we can, like, you know, reinterpret Marx for our age or something is actually a very optimistic, um, you know, that you, that when you have the potential for change in your present, you can relate critically to this history. You can actually change the history through changing your present. Um, that's actually a very optimistic position. Yeah, not if Marx is turned into, I guess, a Democrat, like what we've kind of talked about earlier. And this is not in the Birch Hall, but it, because it, you're right. It's optimistic insofar as you can say, well, we can, in fact, be in a situation when Marx matters again, um, right? But then that can also mean sort of taking what is potentially revolutionary or radical or uh, kind of opening that's in Marx and then subsuming it to the present in such a way that it's just reproducing what already exists, right? So if Marx was a Democrat and we're all just like fulfilling real democracy, we can just work in the fringes of the Democrats to create the New Deal state. And that's what Marx teaches us. And so I, I, this is not to negate your point, but it's a risk precisely because there is in the left that sort of can contend for this tradition that can raise the question of what the dictatorship of the proletariat is or why socialists or what socialists think about the state to begin with. That's where the title in the interview, The Unchanging Core of Marxism, comes in, because it's the question of what that core is. Um, or as Lukacs would say, what is orthodox Marxism? The, you know, that's the issue that he talks about the last book Cliff was writing, um, Trotskyism after Trotsky, and trying to like boil down this core that he has to like pass on somehow. Yeah. And yeah. The, being faced with the problem of like, what is that core? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. um, he says it's two yeah. things. One is the class, uh, the class dimension of the state, mm. and the other is to fight against substitutionism to say that the working class must fight for its own emancipation is acting for itself. Those are the two things. <laughs> Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think 